0: The need to come to a place of acceptance and the need to come to a place of understanding or getting answers, they're both very real needs for us human beings, and they definitely can be interconnected, and there are differences in the best ways to approach getting each of those needs met. And we can sometimes even cause ourselves more difficulty and more hurt and more suffering when we confuse those two needs, or possibly if those needs are a little bit too entwined.
1: Welcome to the Multiamory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily.
0: And I'm Dedeker.
1: We believe in looking to the
2: future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past.
0: So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you
1: on this episode of the multi-emory podcast we're talking about closure what it is when it's needed when it might not actually be something that we need, even if we think that it is. We're going to be taking a deep dive into some research about it, as well as breaking down what do we even really mean when we talk about getting closure or needing closure or wanting closure.
0: Yeah, so sure. I, I know that closure is such a broad topic, and we can think about closure with things like the death of a loved one Uh, But I usually think about it in terms of relationships. I my experience is that that word closure is mostly tossed around with relationships and especially in regards to breakups. I was curious, what are all y'all's experience, (laughs) thoughts, opinions about relationship closure?
2: Well, I mean, I definitely like have one relationship that sticks out in my mind that I didn't feel like I got a lot of closure on, and it sort of haunted me for many years. And then actually, Jace kind of knows the story, but when we were, like, first opening up and becoming polyamorous, I, like, drove down to um, San Diego and, like, met with this ex. This was the the mm-hmm. ex, not the guy that I had sex with, Jace. Oh, oh I yeah, see. This is um, different from that. And, okay. Okay. Yeah, and... Uh, <laughs> And I we just like had a nice lunch and um, and I found like I didn't really need closure after that, even though for years I had been like, oh, what did I do? He broke up with me and I was in college when that happened. And then, you know, three to four years later when I was. Having this lunch with him, it was fine.
0: It was like, eh, I'm I'm over it. So you didn't even have necessarily like a closure talk, to no. talk. It was just kind of no, ha- was... meeting together and having this time that yeah, it was just make that feel better.
2: Exactly. Yeah. I was like seeing each other where we were at at that moment in time and, you know, still a nice guy, but I had moved on with my life and that was good. So that was the closure. It was like an internal closure, almost closing that book and putting it away.
0: Nice, nice. What about you, you Jace? (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that I definitely have certain relationships that I look back on wishing that wishing that they had ended differently, or or maybe not ended, uh, but just that kind of seeing some missed opportunities for better communication, or kind of seeing later on, oh, I think that This could have worked out had we realized these things about ourselves or different things like that. And so I guess in a way, the fact that those still stick in my mind or that's something I think about, you could say, is something that doesn't have closure But I don't know, and this is also hard for me to answer because I I was the one who put together this episode and looked up our research for it, so I'm super steeped in closure and the research and things like that. And that's partly why I thought it was very interesting with Emily's story and her explanation of it, is that you kind of dipped into both parts of this, which is, when we say closure, what do we even mean? Right? Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The other day when Jace was writing this episode, he just turned to me on the couch and was like, define closure. Yeah. To me, closure is when you're reaching a point where you just feel ready to move on from either a, a chapter in your life or a relationship or a situation where it's no longer at the forefront of your brain plaguing you with a bunch of unanswered questions or a bunch of suffering, emotional suffering and thoughts and things like that you know, it's not like completely denying that it ever happened. But for me, it means that I can move on from that pain in some kind of way and onto the rest of my life.
2: Yeah, when I was younger and... boyfriends i broke up with them or they would break up with me i would and i didn't get that sort of closure i would tend to speak about it a lot and my mother would get really angry after a while she'd be like i can't hear about this anymore and so yeah that is interesting that you say at the forefront of your mind because it's certainly i know that that has happened to me many times that i have continued to speak about it after the fact
0: My personal opinion about closure is I tend to be the person who's very much the realist of like, closure's not a thing. You don't need it. Stop trying to get it. It's not something we actually get in real life. It's not like the movies. You know, you don't always get a perfect conversation at your loved one's deathbed or you don't always get a perfect conversation at the end of a relationship, you know, move on from it. But that's probably because I came from a family of origin that was very not sentimental about these things and very much about like, okay, all right, people, let's just move on. Let's just get through this, you know. However, it is so interesting when I think back about my own relationship history and thinking about, you know, what are the relationships where I felt like I got closure, I felt like there was that transition moment of like, okay, I can become this person's friend now genuinely, and there's Mm -hmm. no ill will or weirdness between us. Thinking about the people and exes and stuff that I still think about, either in a negative way of like, I'm still angry at this person or resentful, or in a positive way of I still have longing for this person or I miss this person. That is really interesting because I can't quite make a through line of those. I can't quite look at them and be like, oh, clearly I didn't have a closure conversation with this person. Mm -hmm. And that's why it, it, for me, it feels a little more unpredictable, but it is interesting to see and ask that question. I'm like, huh, like, why do I think about this person still and not this person?
1: Right. And then, so in looking at closure, there's also another thing that people mean with closure. And it's kind of what Emily hit on when she was first telling her story, which was this thing of, why did he break up with me? What, what was the reason? What did I do? And it's this that I want answers. So with closure, there's kind of these two different pieces that are maybe interconnected. Um, but they're separate. And that is the first one is like Dedeker said, is kind of acceptance and like letting go moving on. And then the other one is this. I want answers. I want, I want to understand.
0: Yeah. And those two needs, the need to come to a place of acceptance and the need to come to a place of understanding or getting answers. They're both very real needs for us human beings, and they definitely can be, interconnected, and there are differences in the best ways to approach getting each of those needs met. And we can sometimes even cause ourselves more difficulty and more hurt and more suffering when we confuse those two needs, or possibly if those needs are a little bit too entwined.
1: I think specifically the place this shows up is when what we want is, I want to not be upset anymore, or at least not as much. I want to move on. And so I need answers. Mm -hmm. And and in reality, those two things might be separate from each other, or at least not a one-to-one. Like, getting that answer isn't necessarily going to make you be over it. And I think we see this when you – I know this has happened to me in the past, in my younger days especially, of – having like 10 closer, closure conversations with someone that Ten? you're breaking up with. You're just having closure yeah, yeah. conversation after closure conversation and you keep feeling like you need it because you're still not getting what you want because maybe what you want is a different type of closure.
0: Yeah, I kind of give this analogy to clients sometimes and to myself as a reminder sometimes that if you get really bad food poisoning... You might sit up all night trying to wonder like, oh, what caused the food poisoning? Was it when I went to Chipotle? Was it when I had that yogurt? Was it when I (laughs) I ate that pickle? Like, oh, what was it? What was it? What was it? And even if you figure it out, you're like, oh, it was probably the Chipotle. That doesn't make your food poisoning go away, (laughs) unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I like that. You know, it's like you're
0: still probably going to be miserable and just kind of have to work through it mm-hmm. and heal on its own, even if you got that answer. And I think I, I mean, it's maybe not a perfect analogy, but I do think that applies to things like breakups sometimes. But let's first look at the need for closure through the lens of that type of closure that is seeking answers and understanding.
2: Yeah, so as I spoke about earlier, I definitely, in my youth especially, had this, like, strong desire to try to understand and get some concrete answers, and that was really important to me, and it's apparently something that, like, philosophers and psychologists, they have worked on and thought about for a really long time. So we're going to talk about a psychologist named Ari Kruglansky and their definition of the need for closure, which is that individuals desire for a firm answer to a question and an aversion toward ambiguity
1: Hmm. yeah so this is that one we were talking about of just i want concrete i want to understand i want an answer
2: this makes me think of um how kind of the media talks about something like revenge Like, in our stories and stuff, like, once you get the revenge, then you'll feel better. And this is, like, Mm. similar in the way, like, okay, once you get the closure, then you'll feel better. But often, that isn't really the case for either. So, okay. But in 93, there was something created called the Need for Closure Scale, the NFCS, and it was developed by Ari Kruglansky and then Donna Webster and Adina Kleim, and they created a standard way to measure the need for closure. It was this 42-item scale, which sounds like a lot to me, but then they shortened it in 2007 and created a test that is pretty accurate as well, but it's only 15 questions, so we're going to talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so the, the original scale is still the scale. Like when you're a psychologist is testing for this, they use the large scale, if possible. The shorter one is just kind of, if, if you're in a uh, situation... If you look it up on Cosmo. If you look it up on Cosmo, uh, <laughs> or if you just don't have time to administer the full one, like this is just one part of a larger psychological study and you're trying to keep time down or something, this is a, a validated Study that the 15 question one has been validated to show that it does very closely relate with the 42 item one as well.
0: So, what was interesting in their research is that, first of all, a need for that understanding closure, the need for getting some kind of firm answers, is universal. However, having too intensive a need for understanding closure can cause bias to show up in your pursuit of answers. So, for example, they found that. That kind of really intense need for closure, that really intense need for answers would produce some behavior such as selecting only evidence that supports the first answer that you come up with, you know, like you're just so desperate for getting an answer that it's like the first reliable seeming answer that I come across. I'm just going to stick with that. Things like getting stuck in one way of thinking in spite of new information or not checking the reliability of a source. And this language sounds very like scientific and researchy. However, I'm thinking of how does this apply to relationships? And I think of things like, you know, someone breaks up with you and you're tearing over it and pouring over it and trying to come up with an answer. And maybe you kind of create this answer of like, oh my gosh, I bet you it's because they were seeing somebody else and they fell in love with somebody else actually. And then... When the person that broke up with you maybe talks to you and is honestly like, actually, honestly, I broke up because of this reason and that reason, I feel like we were compatible here, that your intense need for an answer may still stick with that explanation of like, yeah, that's what she said, but I'm pretty sure that she she was actually just in love with somebody else. And so that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Um, Hmm. And so, in fact high levels of a need for closure and for answers has been linked to things like racism, sexism, belief in conspiracy theories, among other things. And in addition to that, a high need for certainty has also been shown to cause more emotional distress because of the fact that a lack of certainty is so upsetting.
2: Right. So there's a lot that makes me think of, yeah, that makes me think of like nine 11 and all the awfulness Mm -hmm. that kind of came out of that, but also like, the need to do something, which I know that there was a really high influx of people joining the army and, you know, armed services and stuff right after that. And mm-hmm. it, it's maybe similar to like this desire to change or to help or to, you know, have something come out of a stressful, challenging, awful situation.
0: Well, I think it's one of the reasons why there's so many conspiracy theories linked to 9-11 and mm-hmm. also right now, as we're recording right now, to the pandemic that... I mean, there's been so much research on this and so much other better coverage of this, but we want a big event to have big answers and we need an answer of some kind. You know, we're not okay with it being ambiguous and that is ripe, fertile ground for conspiracy theories. Indeed.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so so with this, uh, you know, having too strong of a need for closure, like Dedeker was saying, can lead you to kind of Grasp onto one conclusion, the first one that seems sorta of close to fitting. It's like, I'm so uncomfortable because I need this certainty so bad that I'm gonna latch onto that one. And like she said, it's, that's when you keep having ten different closure conversations with your ex because you really wanna understand, but you keep needing more closure because no matter what answers they give you, you're like, no, that doesn't fit. It's got to be something, yeah. that, you know, so. It yeah, can... Or
0: you, you need them to fess up to the thing that you think that right. it is. Right.
1: So almost ironically, that need for it actually makes it more elusive in a way, because then it's just like, no, but I haven't found the right thing that, that fits what I think it needs to be already. Uh, and then in terms of reliability of a source, I mean, Emily made a great point in talking about things like, catastrophes and things like that is also um, when you have this desperate need for certainty, it's like the first piece of information you hear, regardless of whether it's from, it's just from some random Twitter account it's like, that's fact right, or we hear some accusation against some celebrity or something, and it's like, aha I'm going to go with the very first one I heard, I don't care where I heard about that from, whether that was from you know Fox News, whether it was from some Russian news site that some friend reposted on Facebook, you know, whether this was from a friend who actually experienced it firsthand, like we we kind of, it's irrelevant because we just want, right? We just want that concrete answer. Okay. So now on the other side, too low of a need for closure uh, turns into basically... (laughs) (laughs) It's just like not doing anything, not making any decisions, um, avoiding clarity, being intentionally ambiguous, never uh, committing to or deciding on anything. And this can be a problem because it's frustrating for other people around you because you're not as good a communicator if you're not clear on things, even with yourself, of what your decisions or your goals or your priorities are. Uh, and then also it just kind of holds you back, right? So we want to find this balance and be in between these. Essentially, we need some desire for certainty and closure in order to just function, but we don't want to have too much, and we don't want to have too little.
2: And this is interesting. Personality does have an effect on one's need for closure, but to a large extent, it's more affected by the situation. And I, I was wondering... If you found more out, Jace, on what that meant exactly, does it yeah what type of personality like do they mean someone who has an attachment style that's in a specific way, or like what or mm. uh people, yeah, I don't know no
1: so so what this means is that if you say you were to test someone on their on this scale on their need for closure scale, and basically, if someone tests really high, they're probably generally going to test on the higher side compared to someone who tests in the middle or low, it's kind of like, this is a personality trait, not saying like I some other personality is this or not. It's just, this is, there's a part of it that's inherent. That's a trait that you have. That but, makes sense. But to a large extent, it's affected by the situation. So it's not this isn't just something that you're stuck with. It's like you've got this and that's it. It's like you do have some control and it's affected by the situations you're in quite a bit. Which is yeah,
2: yeah, which is what we sort of talked about before regarding catastrophes or our current pandemic situation. Mm -hmm. Anything that's kind of more in flux um, where people have maybe more stress or more fatigue that is happening, uh, even a noisier environment, uh, more information coming at all angles at us from at once. And uh, just like feeling like we need to get opinions from everyone to increase our need for closure. All of those things can increase our need for closure. Well, and sure.
1: specifically, if we feel like we need to give an opinion, and I think that I see this one a lot on social media, where kind of everyone feels like they're required to give an opinion about everything that happens as it happens. And that that actually that feeling of I need to give an opinion on this increases your need for closure, which, as we said before, can increase your susceptibility to bias and actually making worse decisions and finding less accurate information.
2: So and having the last word, it seems like on social media <laughs> and on, yeah on the internet in general, interesting.
1: Right, right. Well, then, I mean, then we kind of get into that other thing of once you've stated an opinion publicly, then there's this other thing of now I'm entrenched. And if I back down on that, then I see that as a negative trait about myself. And so now I have to stick to it. So he's saying something publicly then kind of causes that problem to be even worse of now I'm Mm -hmm. only going to see evidence that supports me on this. And if we just look at anything that's going on in politics or the news right now, it's just like, yeah, hello, there it is. Like, that's what's going on. It's like no one's minds are being changed because everyone's voicing their opinions publicly online, and then you can never back down from them. Or at least it's much harder to. Anyway, I could go on and rant about that forever. Uh, so the terrorism thing like that Emily brought up with 9-11, that they did studies of this where they just had people read an article or watch some footage talking about 9-11 and then had them do something else unrelated and then had them do this need for closure scale. And the people who were kind of reminded of something that was very stressful and tragic and out of control feeling tested higher on the need for control scale, right? The need for closure scale. The need for closure scale. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So even just being reminded of it, much less even being in it. So they've also done other studies testing people right after things like the uh, Boston Marathon bombings and things like that, and seeing these spikes in uh, people's need for closure. So then as far as pursuing closure goes, if we're feeling this that we need this closure, that there's two stages to it. There's the finding stage and the keeping stage. Finders, keepers. I, I came up with those names. They had other <laughs> names for them, but well I done. thought these were cuter.
0: <laughs> so, it, what, what, was it like really ugly names? <laughs> what are you talking about?
1: It was like grasping and holding or something. Oh, it yeah. just Finding and keeping was cuter. <laughs> uh, so So finding is about getting that answer quickly which we talked about, you know, you jump to conclusions, you don't verify your information as thoroughly, things like that. And then keeping is about holding on to that closure because now that I have it, I don't want to let it go. And if I have a strong need for closure, changing my mind or realizing this might not be the right solution can be scary and can be upsetting. So it's that thing of ignoring information that contradicts it and favoring information that confirms it.
0: So, We've set up the fact that it could be a problem if you have too strong of a need for closure for understanding for answers. It could be a problem if you also have too weak of a need for closure, understanding answers. So we can work on taking actions that helps bring all that to the middle, forging a middle path forward, as mm-hmm. it were.
2: So That's that our, includes our motto here on Multiamory.
1: Yeah, what's the middle path?
0: So that includes, you know, moving the focus from finding any conclusion or any answer right now to finding the most correct conclusion, the most correct answer. And sometimes that's not always clear. It's different when it's, I'm debating what actually happened around this particular news story versus I'm trying to figure out what happened in this relationship. Sometimes you can't always Google it to find the most <laughs> correct answer. How nice that would pro- be. That would be so nice. Can you imagine if you just Google why did he break up with me and it would actually give you an answer and not just a bunch of, you know, like bustle articles about
2: <laughs> right. possible I feel like reasons? That, that would give me some sort of closure though. That would be like, oh, You know what? Thank you. Thank you for putting it just in front of my face right now. I have to come to terms with it, and I appreciate the closure that you gave me. I feel like this is a premise
1: for a Black Mirror episode, though. Ah, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Nice. So
0: it can't help to realize that just jumping to the first answer that you come to, or the first or most convenient conclusion, may in the long run have more negative results for you. So it's good to have an open mind. You know, think of conclusions, think of, think of answers. I think especially in these kind of like more wiggly situations like a breakup, you can think about it as though you're trying them on rather than making a hard decision, rather than tattooing them on your brain or on your heart. It is okay to change them. Again, be wary of committing publicly to your conclusion until you've had time to consider other possibilities and examine more evidence. Uh, and as a matter of fact, often the world really doesn't need another opinion stated on social media as fact. <laughs> um, amen. <laughs> not in all situations, but I, I, uh, but my, I don't know. Personally, I feel like by the time I've gotten to the party or learned about something going on, I'm like, I don't need to put my trite bullshit opinion out here, too. There's enough noise. Right, I'm like, but if I wasn't there when it just happened, me.
1: I'm not sure my opinion's needed.
0: Well, that's just me. People can debate that. Something else that can be helpful is. Meditation. I know some of the best advice I got around this was that if you're wrestling with something, you know, this kind of need for getting answers or not understanding something, you can reframe it for yourself and actually find a calm and a restfulness in letting yourself not know and letting yourself not need to know. Certain things. Again, this is helpful with maybe things like death or the end of a relationship or things like that, that sometimes you can really focus on how does it feel if I just take that pressure off of myself to have to get answers and just kind of rest in not knowing and not having to know.
2: I really appreciate this sort of method of taking the middle path as one of trying to educate yourself as well as you can. And perhaps that means, like, looking at both sides and not necessarily letting one's personal bias, like, do all the talking. And Mm. the first thing that you find being like, okay, well, yeah, this is uh, helping me see that what I believed in the first place is the truth. But instead, like, you can look at various things. So, yeah, I think we should all, like, work on that from time to
1: time. Yeah. And I think it's also worth keeping in mind that if... Coming to the wrong conclusion, if the fear of that isn't enough to motivate you not to, you know, to strive to not have such a strong need for firm answers and closure is also that the stronger your need for closure is, the the more discomfort you're going to feel at every little thing that you don't have closure on. And that will trickle out into other areas of your life as well. So just even for your own well-being, if you can find some ways to to be more comfortable with that except some of that lack of firm answer at least right now that that also will help you feel better
0: yeah so i think the way that this gets applied to real life is and this is definitely something that comes up in some client sessions is you know by the time you reach the sixth closure conversation with your ex maybe you don't need any more. maybe you don't do the seventh just try that on maybe you don't do the seventh <laughs> because again at the end of the day. You can ask all these questions about why they broke up with you or whatever about stuff that happened in the relationship, and they can answer you. You're still gonna food poisoning. You're still gonna food poisoning, and they may answer you honestly or dishonestly. You know, there may be no way of actually being able to hook them up to a lie detector test to make sure that they're giving you the honest answer. They may never give you an honest answer. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, and so sometimes it could be kind of a futile Mm. quest, as
1: it were. Yeah. And then the other thing to think about if you have had several of these closure conversations or you keep trying to have it and not being able to is that perhaps the closure that you're seeking is not this type of closure. It's not the answer's closure. It's the other type, the acceptance type of closure that will take more of the edge off of that hurt and discomfort. And so that's what we're going to talk about next. But first, we're going to take a quick moment to talk about how we can keep this show coming to you and to everybody out there for free. For a long time now, we've been fans of AdamandEve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also
0: That's Multi, M-U-L-T-I, at AdamandEve.com, AdamMail.com, or Eve'sToys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast, and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I.
2: So many psychologists and counselors believe that calling it closure, just saying like the word closure can actually hurt our ability to process grief more than it helps process grief, which is really interesting. So closure just implies that something is done, it's complete, we're, we're over, and really grief, if, if you have ever lost anyone, and I think all three of us have, um, that's just not how it works. It comes in waves. There are, you know, some days it's much more apparent than others and it is unpredictable completely. So just seeking, you know, that type of closure where we end up sort of preventing ourselves from proactively and healthfully moving forward during through the grieving process is probably not what we ultimately want. So it can cause us to feel this guilt also for not being totally fine about it. Uh and yeah, I mean, geez, I've I've felt that before for sure. Like, well, I'm not over it yet what's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it really it, it is as I said, it's completely unpredictable. So we're going to talk more about acceptance, as opposed to just this word closure.
1: Yeah. So there's a, a great article called The Myth of Closure by Bob Livingston, who's a social worker in San Francisco. And in the article, he emphasizes that grief And loss are not something that we move on from entirely. It's not a book that gets closed or something that gets packed up in a box with a bow and put away forever. Instead of seeking to let go or close the door on these experiences, instead, he encourages us to focus on healthy grieving and then finding ways to create a new way of life, essentially a new healthy way of life and living with that grief where it doesn't show up as a destructive force in our lives. And that that's a a proactive process to get there and not just something you can kind of get one answer or do one thing and then boom, it's closed and it's done forever.
0: Yeah. Again, I think that we've really been messed up by movies with this in a certain (laughs) extent that like when someone dies, there's, there's almost always going to be a scene where, you get to say goodbye or you get to have that, that intense conversation with them before they die. And it's all wrapped up nicely at the end of the movie. We understand what their life was about or the sacrifice that they made, and we can walk away feeling good. And that's just not how it goes in real life necessarily. Um, and so when we're talking about grief, I know most of us maybe think about death of a loved one. However, grief and the grieving process shows up in all sorts of losses, and it can be more or less serious, but it's all still grief, you know, so it could be the death of a pet, it could be moving to a new city, leaving an old city behind. It could be the end of the relationship or it could be the loss of an important opportunity, or it could be the loss of a future that you thought that you were headed towards that shows up a lot with relationships and with jobs and all kinds of things that that's that's one that I see people dealing with a lot as far as like grieving and mourning is sometimes that like having to grieve the loss of what I thought my future was going to be is, can be really intense. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean that, that hits real hard thinking about some particularly painful breakups from my past is that kind of, yeah, sort of mourning the loss of what I thought my life was going to be. And, and I think that we really, we really sell ourselves short when we try to think that it's not grief like that we don't give the respect to that grief process, even if, say, it's something like moving away from a city that you love, that maybe you'll be pretty much over it in a month or two. Maybe it'll take longer. Like it's, yeah, sure, that's less serious than a death of someone really close to you. And it's going to take less time and it's probably going to be less painful, but it's still grieving. It's still a loss. It's still a process that you can go through proactively and healthfully or not.
2: Yeah, and grief is a really, I think, very unique and specific emotion that each person feels in a very unique way to themselves. And I know people talk about, like, the grieving process and, like, the steps to grieving and all of this, but it really doesn't necessarily happen in a specific order, and... In a specific timeline, Uh, it doesn't last the same amount of time as like something else that you grieved in your life maybe did. Uh, So we do need to learn to move through it in a healthy way. And it needs to be an active and an intentional process. I know other um, communities of people, other countries, other, uh, you know, (laughs) there are people out there that I think do the grieving process better than maybe the three of us were taught to in our lives for sure. Uh yeah, I think yeah.
0: I think um what you what it sounds like you're alluding to is I do think that like in America and a lot of western cultures we've really been scrubbed of a lot of our rituals for grieving, mm-hmm. you know, like especially with the death of a loved one. It's like, yeah, we have a funeral and that's it. Go back to work, have fun, you know. Maybe you'll get a couple of bereavement days from your job or work or whatever. But like, we don't have any kind of ritual or instruction of what you need to do, what you need to go through. Of course, it's going to depend on your religious background. Certain religions have very specific instructions for that. And certain cultures have very specific instructions for that. But I do think that a lot of us don't have that. We're not raised with that. And we're just kind of left to be like, all right, just kind of float around and wander. I, I know we definitely don't really have any kind of socially or culturally set rituals for grieving the end of a relationship, Really? not at all no like at all <laughs> at <laughs> it's all. more
2: like get over it or move on or you know it ended so you need to you know figure out a way to sort of move forward or those like you know men do this and women do this <laughs> right. so you see those freaking memes about the right. grieving process with men and women that are kind of bullshit
0: it reminds me of, and really quick content warning, we're going to talk about miscarriages and abortion just really quick, that I read this study that was done specifically of Japanese women, because in Japanese culture, when someone has to abort a baby or has a miscarriage, there's a really established cultural practice of, um, essentially what it looks like is kind of like you go to the local shrine or a particular shrine and you buy like this tiny little, it's called like a Jizo statue. It's like a tiny little uh, stone statue that you set there at the shrine. And, and it's specifically before that for kind of mourning the loss of a baby that you were carrying. And they found that kind of, because this is a really long established cultural practice that like Japanese women, when they went through this really traumatic, really tragic experience that mentally and emotionally, they kind of bounced back from that experience a lot quicker than women whose cultures didn't have any kind of ritual like that, you know, like that for these Japanese women, of course, it had almost an identical emotional impact. It's not like they were fine the next day, but that, going they they theorize that going through that ritual helps set them up to be able to find that acceptance, you know, that kind of closure and move on. And, and that's another situation where we do not have a ritual for that whatsoever. <laughs> you know, it's kind of been like let's just not talk about it and you deal with it on your own.
1: Right. And it's if you think about it too, the irony being that in our culture, I feel like we have this idea of just just move on with your life, try to move on. And like you said, Dedeker, in those studies, they found that that actually took longer to then get over and recover from that instead of intentionally spending time doing things to grieve for that. And I think this applies to a lot of other things like relationships, which to bring it back to that, where we started this whole episode is kind of talking about breakups and things like that, is that... I feel like a lot of the conventional advice out there for dealing with a breakup is to just get over it, right? Like that's where we have the concept of the rebound relationship or something else is like, distract yourself. Don't think about it. Find other things to do. Don't think about it. It's just this like, don't think (laughs) about it. Don't think about it. And I would bet that that same thing would apply if you did have sort of more of a proactive, intentional way of grieving for something, Even if it was, maybe you only dated this person for a month. But it's like, yeah, give that some respect and give some moment for that grieving. I would bet that in the long run, that would actually end up with feeling better sooner and being able to move on sooner in a healthier way.
2: Yeah, and letting yourself actually feel the emotion as opposed to kind of tamping it down for a long period of time. So the first step in accepting... Acceptance of the loss and sort of moving through the loss and the grieving process is to accept that you are grieving and that that is natural. That's okay. It's nothing to feel ashamed of. And it also part of that is just accepting that how you grieve and what grief is, is that it can affect and permeate sort of every aspect of your life. And so we have a list of ways in which grieving can occur. And this is from the University of Washington Counseling Center. So let's talk about some of those.
0: Yeah. So the real life ways that grief can show up is, you know, things like having difficulty concentrating, feeling apathetic, uh, feeling Anger. You can feel anger at whoever was responsible. You can feel angry at the person who broke up with you. You can feel angry at the person that died. You can feel angry at yourselves, at God, uh, or just whatever handy target is around. I've definitely been guilty of that one. You can feel guilt, a sense of, oh my goodness, if I'd only done this, if I'd only done this in the relationship, maybe we'd still be together, you know, things like that. You can have sleep disturbances, a loss of appetite. You can have a feeling of wanting to withdraw from others. These are all very, very normal responses to grieving the end of something.
1: Yeah. Also things like just irritability or intense sadness. I mean, that one seems obvious, but if you If you're prone to these bouts of just suddenly I'm crying and I'm really sad because I thought about this thing, yeah, that's part of the grieving process. On the other side, feeling numb, just feeling like you kind of can't feel anything, uh, or loneliness, or a sense of being separate from others, or a loss of life's meaning. And this is just part of a much longer list. But I think why it's important to acknowledge these things is just that this is natural and it's part of it and then also to kind of i guess let yourself off the hook a little bit because of it too
0: and so, i guess i think i think like you were pointing out at the beginning of the episode jace that sometimes we can be seeking closure thinking that it's going to short circuit this and short circuit this and we're not going to have to go through feeling all these terrible things You know, that we feel like, okay, I need to go to my ex, we can have a conversation, I can get all these answers, and then I can go to sleep at night and not have to feel the anger or the sadness or the irritability or the loss of appetite, you know, that that's going to be the thing that's going to get me through this when the reality is that often, the only way out is through.
2: Yeah. And there is that kind of old adage out there that you just need to give it time with your potential grief or with like the need for closure or with a breakup or the loss of someone or something, you just need to give it time. Don't worry, you know, you'll get over it eventually. But according to the University of Washington, that's actually not true. So one way um, of understanding the work to be done in the grieving process is to think of grieving as a series of tasks that we need to complete. So not necessarily in the sequence, but let's talk about four different things that you can do. Uh, so the first is to accept the finality of the loss that maybe it is, this is it, and it's not going to come back. And, you know, that relationship or that person uh, is no longer going to be in my life and accept that. Um, acknowledge and express the full range of feelings we experience as a result of the loss, which that's an overwhelming idea, I think, to a lot of us. Because th- there's going to be a lot of emotion involved there. Uh, maybe potential depression from that. Um You know, a huge amount of feelings that we just discussed, and then even other things as well can come up. Um, Also adjusting, number three, is adjusting to a life in which the lost person, object, or experience is absent. And that does, as we say, take time, but um, it's another sort of thing that you have to understand and get through in this process of grieving. And then finally, say goodbye or ritualize uh, this this moment and ritualize a movement to a new peace with the loss. So come to some sort of peace and understanding about the loss being present in your life.
1: Yeah. And so I think the, the point that they were trying to make in saying that it's not true that you just need to give it time is that time by itself isn't enough. But time while proactively doing these things is is what will get you through it faster ultimately and and in a healthier way
0: yeah i think that that old adage of you just need to give it time or it's just going to take time it sort of implies just keep doing what you're doing just go about your normal life and let time take care of it you right. know again we have the time heals all wounds and it's like it's sort of true but at the same time if you're just skating through like okay fine i'm just going to go to work and pretend like nothing happened and just wait for time to do its magic Uh, that's probably not going to work in the way that you're hoping that it will. You know, your own grieving process, it could last just a few hours, it could be days, it could be years. But in any case, the process is going to be better if you're able to take an active role in that process as well as taking care of yourself. You know, so that involves not trying to rush the process because that's not going to make it go any more faster. It's just going to make it more difficult. um, Having faith that you are going to get through it. You know, not giving yourself a deadline, or a time limit. Um, I know that I've definitely slipped into a lot of self-shaming around where I'm like, Oh my gosh, it's six months after this breakup and I still woke up in bed crying. And you know, it's like, that's not going to help your grieving process. You know, like adding shame to it is probably going to exacerbate things and make things feel a lot worse. Um, it includes also expecting and accepting, that your productivity is going to be decreased. I do think that part of these issues are the fact that we live in a culture that is so productivity focused which is why great you get two bereavement days and sure go ahead and grieve but you better come to work at the same time. <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. I understand that not a lot of people necessarily have that choice unfortunately, you know, not a lot of people are able to necessarily take the time off work. However, I think that there can be So I'm turning towards self-compassion and self-acceptance that like during this time, your productivity is probably going to be not the same as it normally is. It involves doing things like accepting and seeking support that can be support from the people around you, from friends, from partners, from family, or it could be from professionals as well, a therapist, a coach, some other kind of professional that you trust.
1: And while you're grieving is be especially diligent about regular eating, sleeping, and light to moderate exercising. Uh, easier said than done. Easier said than that's done. That's important. Yeah. It's, I think that's why it's worth noting. It's being diligent about it. It's not just let yourself sleep. It's like, you no, know, kind of make yourself sleep, right? Like Be diligent. This is part of your homework here. Um, is also telling those around you, like Dedeker was saying about seeking support and accepting support from those around you, is also tell them what helps and what doesn't. If them talking shit about your ex doesn't help tell them that that's that's not helpful for my grieving process uh do self-care baths massages walks uh i just i am not grieving currently but i just bought a uh, one of these theracane like massaging cane (laughs) things i'm doing some self-care they had that at the um the retreat 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 that we went went on they're so great it's a life yep Yeah, it's so wonderful. Uh, And then also, I love this one, is do something to help someone else. This is such a cool way to get out of your own head. And people always say, pay it forward. And I don't believe in karma, so I don't really think of it that way. But it helps you, right? By helping someone else, you're getting out of your own suffering a little bit by putting some good into the world. And that's awesome.
2: I think it would be lovely if as a society we normalized grieving a little bit more because Dedeker you were talking about like the lack of bereavement days or things like that and mm-hmm. it would be lovely if perhaps that wasn't so stigmatized as so many things are in our culture <laughs> yeah. but yeah mm-hmm. that uh, things things could change in terms of allowing more time off and more ability to kind of understand if you're not going to be as productive or as okay during this time.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that something that also exacerbates it is that we're in a culture that, first of all, is very much in denial about death in general. Mm, You know, like we get really awkward talking about death or acknowledging it. So that makes things worse. And I suspect that maybe an offshoot of that is that we're also kind of in denial about talking about relationships ending because mm. our dominant narrative failure is like, is, Yeah, you find magic. your soulmate, yeah. you find the one, it's magic, you're there yeah. to like together forever. And anything less than that is a failure and it's embarrassing and shameful and awful. And so I do think that that also makes it worse that we're kind of in this like relationship ending denial where we don't necessarily want to talk about it. I mean, I don't know anybody who would feel comfortable talking about that at work, for instance, of being like, Hey, I just had a bad breakup, I need to take a week off work. You know, I, I mean, my my impression anyway. Maybe people have super progressive workplaces. Um, my impression is that you'd be laughed out to a certain extent, maybe not to your face, but where it'd be like, "What? Like, get over it! Like, you have to come to work." You know, so
1: yeah, it's so just anyway, a relationship, whatever.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. A, maybe that's a soapbox for another time. <laughs> maybe we'll talk about workplace
2: reform <laughs> uh, another time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to have a guest on for that. <laughs> so, okay. In conclusion, let's recap the two aspects of closure that we discussed today so the first is the the need for like firm explanations and reasons as to why something happened why something ended um so it is like this this need for firm answers is next necessary to function but too strong a need and it can be more harmful than good so we learned that today and that stressors can increase this need so things that are happening in your life challenges pandemics you know, stuff
1: that's sort of occurring for all of us right now. Yeah. And being that one of the things you can do to help uh, mitigate that strong need for these solid answers is to be aware of the importance of getting correct answers and correct information. And they've actually shown in some of the studies that just being aware of the fact that there are also negative consequences to coming up with the wrong conclusions to things can actually help to kind of rein in that desperate need for those solid answers as quickly. And then, as we said before, once you come to a conclusion, be aware that the healthiest approach is to be open to changing, or at the very least, being open to modifying that conclusion as you get more information. Don't put yourself in a position where you're locked into that one thing and can't change it.
0: And then the other side of the closure coin, which is seeking acceptance of a loss. Remember that it takes more than just time. It takes a proactive approach. Your grief is totally unique, and it doesn't need to fit anybody else's timetable or order of events. And remember to take care of yourself and get the support that you need.
1: Yeah. So while both aspects are important, being able to distinguish between them and develop self-awareness in our need for each can make our pursuit of closure less destructive and ultimately get us to a place of well-being faster. So for our bonus episode this week, we're going to be talking a little bit about some interesting research about specifically some letter writing and journaling exercises for getting over breakups specifically And what this research has shown us about things to avoid and what to do and what's the most helpful to do with those. So for our patrons, we're excited to see you in that bonus episode. And for now, we would love to hear from all of you about this episode. What was helpful for you? Is there anything that you wish that you had known before or something that you're really glad you just found out right now because you're having to deal with it? The best place that you can share your thoughts with us and other listeners is on this episode. Episodes discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to Patreon.com/MultiAmory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can also email us at info info@MultiAmory.com. At MultiAmory is created and produced by Emily Matlack, Dedeker Winston, and me, Jace Lindgren. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Schenewerk and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding.